You can open your Bibles with me to John chapter 16. John chapter 16. Lord willing, we will be finishing John chapter 16 today. I told Kevin before the service started here that I'm going to have to start taking smaller bites of these texts because my notes keep just getting longer and longer. So I trust the Lord with the time today and ask that He would help us. Um, before I get started, I just would ask you to stand with me if you're able to read these verses together, and then we'll pray and dive into John chapter 16, beginning in verse 25. Jesus says, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father Himself loves you, because you have loved Me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Thank you. you may be seated. As you're being seated, I'll ask you to go with me once again to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, O oh Lord, whatever understanding, whatever richness, whatever encouragement, whatever peace that You intend for these words to bring us, I pray that they would. Father, I pray that we could be found laboring after Your purpose and Your will and not our own. Lord, any inclination that I might have to use these words for my own causes or my own agenda, I pray You would rid me of them. Father, I ask that You would teach us that as Your Word goes forth, You would be the primary speaker here today. God, I ask that You would guard us from error. Lord, that You would give boldness, that You would give us a deeper and abiding understanding of who You are. Lord, equip us as Your people to serve You well. Father, equip us to trust You when we don't. Lord, I ask that in all these things that You would be glorified and that Your Son would be exalted. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Just briefly, last week we were looking at the previous section. Your sorrow will turn into joy straight out of the text. Considering how all of the sorrows, death, suffering, difficulty is all really pictured in the cross. That apart from all the suffering that's in the world, apart from sin, there would be no suffering in the world. And how Christ is seen and illustrating to us 
the death of sorrow in his own death. But not only that, his resurrection from the dead, his conquering, and we'll consider that more again today towards the end, but his conquering of all evil in the world. That was our focus last week. And today we pick up here at the end of chapter 16. And before we get into it, I have one preliminary word to give you. I'm not sure what the title of this sermon is. I put one on the bulletin. I think it was maybe true understanding equals true prayer. And there's some truth in that. And then the one on my notes says understanding and experiencing God. And I guess we'll just trust the Lord to figure out what the title of this thing's going to be by the time we get done. And we'll let the text lead us in that. But something has occurred to me in these things. We're seeing in our verses today, Jesus Christ is opening up and He's promising the disciples their understanding of the Father is going to be opening up, deepening. They're going to grow in understanding. And it's probably, hopefully, evident that there's, there is a, a, a paradox of sorts when it comes to preaching and ministry. You know what that is? On the one hand, I want to be right. I want what I say to be true. Actually, it must be true, or I'm a liar, and what I'm telling you is false. But the other side of it is that I don't just want to be right. Whenever I stand before the Lord and give an account for how I've served Him in the context of this church, I don't want my claim to be, I was right, God. What I told them was true. What consolation is there in that? What I'm praying and desiring for you all is that God would communicate the truth Himself in such a way that your strength, that you go out of here not just growing in your knowledge of truth and understanding, but that there is a fruitful benefit in your life now because of it. That's Jesus' intention to His disciples that they would grow and benefit by the truth He's telling them. Not just that they would know it. And so with that preliminary thought, we begin looking together at verse 25. Jesus says, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. Now, remember the context of what Jesus is doing here. He's speaking to the disciples the night before He would be crucified. He's speaking to them and everything that He has been telling them and everything He's going on to tell them is preparing them to face tribulation and anguish at His death. They're about to be in absolute and utter anguish because of His death. But here's the thing. It's not limited to that. And we're going to see in our text today that this tribulation he's describing is something that's actually going to be experienced even after his resurrection from the dead. In other words, the suffering of Christian people does not end simply because Jesus is no longer in the grave. That's one thing that we're hearing in this today. That's one thing we're going to hopefully see. Which means every Christian alive today will bear the marks of tribulation and persecution. And if they don't yet, they will. You will. If you have not known persecution or tribulation for the sake of Christ, you will. Paul told Timothy, indeed all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But too often we limit our... And, and you say, well, what does that have to do with this verse 25 about Jesus no longer speaking in figures of speech but talking plainly? We have to set the stage in the context for why He's doing this. 
There is certainly, and our text is going to end today with a focus on the certainty of this tribulation. And so I'm telling you, Jesus has told us that's why he's saying these things to you. In verse 33, he says, I have said these things to you. What for? That in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. So here's my point. Jesus told us the reason he said all of this is so that we would have peace in the face of tribulation. And I'm telling us as we work through these verses, keep in mind this is going to be related to how we endure tribulation and persecution. And too often we limit our definition of persecution to the idea of some evil tyrant telling you, if you do not deny Jesus Christ and say He's not God, He's not King, He's not my Savior, then we're going to throw you in jail or kill you. We sometimes limit our, our, our comprehension of what this kind of tribulation is to some governmental oppression. Now, while those days of governmental oppression may be coming to us sooner than we'd like to see, we've got to see that every, everything you experience in the realm of difficulty and opposition, which tempts you to look away from Christ, that is tribulation and persecution. Well, how can I say something like that? Do you want to know what the word, the root idea of tribulation is? Many of us, you might think of a Left Behind movie. You might think of some idea of Armageddon, of world sorrow and difficulty, but really the word tribulation is the idea of pressure. It's the idea of being pressured. That's really the picture. And so keep this in mind. Anything that pressures you or pushes, pushes you away from Christ is to be considered as persecution, tribulation. Peter says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And my argument at this point is that the darts which come, the darts which come flying at us from the adversary are often much more subtle than we expect them to be. And many times they come at us from within. Think about this. The Scripture tells us, Jesus tells us that the devil sought to sift Peter as wheat. That's true. Here's a dart from the devil aimed at Peter. And yet consider the context that that dart came at him. Not only is the devil seeking to sift Peter as wheat, but the way in which he does it is through his own fear. Peter's own fear and desire to preserve himself. That's the pressure that he was feeling that's leading his eyes away from Christ and leading him to fall. The question is, are we prepared today? Are you prepared to receive the words of Christ as they're meant to be received? A simple question to ask us all is, do you desire joy in your soul? Do you want to be joyful? Do you want to be excited about all that God is doing in your life currently right now at this moment? Do you want to have encouragement? That's the idea. The closing verse says, take heart. Do you want to be able to be encouraged and take heart in the face of certain strife? Oh, let him who has ears to hear, hear. Jesus says, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. What's the first thing we see here? Jesus, the first thing we see is He's addressing their understanding of His own words and teaching about the Father. 
He says, I have said these things in figures of speech. He's referring to communications he's already been given them about particularly the father. And now he's saying, I'm going to be more clear and plain for you about the father. The first thing you ought to be confronted with is that encouragement in the face of trials is going to be related to truth and reality. You get my meaning? We know this is going towards how to deal with trials and tribulation. The first thing Jesus says is that this is going to have to do with you understanding truth concerning the Father in reality. Too many people try to escape trials by denying reality. By pretending that things are better than they actually are. Have you ever thought about it in this way? If someone who's facing severe difficulty and they just try to imagine that the circumstance is actually not quite so bad as it is, does that do anything to help the situation at all? For one, it's just dishonest. It's kind of like taking a, a sugar pill and thinking, well, there's something magical in this. You know, maybe you're like those those cartoons in Space Jam that think that the water is Michael Jordan's special stuff and makes them feel confident. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about imagining that you're better than you are so that you can perform better than you thought you could. He's saying there is an encouragement at the heart level that will help you to endure these things with real peace, with real joy, not a pretend one. He's appealing to their understanding of objective truth. This is basically what Jesus is telling them, that he's going to open up and deepen their understanding of all that he's been telling them. He says, I've been telling you in figures of speech or illustrations or parables, but the hour is coming when I'm not going to speak to you that way anymore. I'm going to speak to you plainly. True doctrine and true understanding of God will always produce a practical benefit when the Holy Spirit applies it. Always. Here's the principle. Orthodoxy. That's right believing. Always produces orthopraxy. Right behavior. That if you believe what is true in your soul, it's going to have an effect on what you do and how you live. You cannot escape this reality biblically. You see this reality expressed through Paul much of the time. Take the book of Ephesians, for example. If you read the book of Ephesians, you'll read the first three chapters. And everything that Paul is saying in that book is this is true. This is true. This is true. This is true. And he's telling you the foundation of all that you believe about Christ and what's been done to you. And then the second half of the book is in light of that truth, this is how you're to live. In light of what's true of you in Christ, this is how you live. It's what you believe to be true is going to impact how you live. And as I'm hoping to demonstrate for us today, right believing is much more than being theologically correct. Something I was reminded of this week even, that the devil knows theology. He knows truth. He doesn't love it. And he doesn't love the God that that theology is describing to him. There has to be something more than that for us. So Jesus says, I've said these things to you in figures of speech. Up until this point, much of what Jesus has revealed to them has been through parables and through illustrations that appeal to their limited understanding. That's what he means. These parables he's told. And this is, this is the point. Do you remember what Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3? He's explained to him. He says, you must be born again. 
Now, born again is much more than a parable and an illustration. It's a necessity to know God at all. But he uses this illustration and he's explaining it to Nicodemus. Nicodemus has no idea what he's talking about. And this is what Jesus tells him. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? One thing I believe Jesus is communicating here in our text is he's basically telling the disciples, I've been speaking to you on earthly, fleshly terms. I've been communicating truth about God in a fleshly way that's helpful for you to understand. And you're not quite getting it. I'm about to open up your understanding to see things spiritually in a heavenly way. And here's a very big point. Jesus says he's speaking in figures of speech, but he's about to make it plain. It's not as though Jesus has failed as a communicator. You get what I'm saying? Jesus has not been deceptive or misleading towards them. Jesus has been openly declaring the things which have been given to him by the Father. And he's not disingenuous. It's not as though Jesus is walking around telling riddles all the time, hoping that nobody gets it. He's speaking plain truth in an illustrative way, in a a, a parabolic way. And the people aren't understanding. Consider this, John 18 and verse 20. Jesus before the high priest says this. I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. You see the point? Jesus is saying that the doctrine that I've proclaimed, I haven't tried to keep it hidden. I haven't tried to keep you from understanding what I'm telling you about my father and about myself. That's what he's telling these this high priest. Here. Now, here's the point. If Jesus spoke openly to the world, as he's telling us, that's exactly what he says. I've spoken openly to the world. Why didn't they understand? Why did they not understand, though he spoke openly? Well, as demonstrated in our text concerning his own disciples, Jesus had the power to speak plainly to them and effectually lead them to the truth. Do you see that in the text? Jesus says, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. Now he's saying there's a time coming. I'm going to no longer do that, but I'm going to tell you plainly about the father. And he's going on to say, you're going to understand these things I'm telling you. And as a matter of fact, they say, oh, we get it now. We do understand. Here's the point. Jesus is able to break through the barrier in their hearts that keeps them from understanding these things. He has the power to do it. My question is, why didn't he do this for everyone? Why did Jesus not make it known and plain in this way to all the people in the world? Turn with me back to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, in the context of Jesus speaking the way that he did. Listen to verses 10 through 17. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says you will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull 
And with their ears they can barely hear. Their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts. And turn and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes for they see. And your ears for they hear. For truly I say to you many prophets and righteous people. Long to see what you see. And did not see it. And to hear what you hear. And did not hear it. Here's my question. Those that it was granted for them to understand, given for them to understand the secrets of the things of the kingdom of heaven was as though Jesus says, hey, here's some people who are smarter than everybody else. I think I'll reveal the heavenly secrets to them because they're more fitted to understand these things. Is that what Jesus is saying? No, he's saying it's been granted or given to you to understand. And see, the trouble with the rest of the world that's unbelieving is that their capacity to understand what he said was lacking. Here's my point. It's not that his message, even in the parables and the figures of speech, were lacking. It's that those he spoke them to, they had hardness of heart, Matthew says to us there. Hardness of heart. Dull hearts that don't love God. And that's why they don't understand. It's not because of an error on Jesus' part. And here's the truth. His own disciples would have been in the same condition if it had not been given or granted for them to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. If you know about the kingdom of heaven here today, it's because the spirit has granted for you to know those things. You have been changed. You have been made alive to them. And one of the things we're seeing, actually, in verse 25, you remember, I just read for you, Jesus says to the one who has more will be given. Well, here these disciples are being told it's been granted to you. And Jesus is saying more is about to be given. I'm going to speak plainly to you more than you know is going to be given. Now, consider this as well, even from what we were just looking at in John three. Here's the point about this. This seeing of the kingdom of heaven. Same principle. Jesus tells Nicodemus, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, unless you're born again. And here's the interesting thing. In that very context, the thing that he's trying to illustrate for Nicodemus about being born again, he talks about the wind and the spirit. Here's the difference. Here's why people do not understand these things. It's because they do not have divine Illumination from the Spirit of God. So here's the question. Has it been granted to you here today to understand the secrets of the kingdom of heaven? Do you understand the secrets of the kingdom of God and how you expect to be there someday? If you do, if you think you do, is the reason why you understand the result of your own speculations Or is it a divine work where God has illumined your soul to the truth according to His Spirit and not only the flesh? He says, I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. The last thing I want to look at in verse 25 is this. That the divine illumination always produces an understanding of God the Father. God the Father is the focus. Here is this awareness, this opening up of truth. And here's what it's about. About the Father. And if you're interested in some special revelation in order to achieve carnal goals, that has nothing to do with what Jesus is describing here. Your very heart's understanding of God the Father and Jesus Christ is going to determine how you navigate trials. 
That's where he's going. Jesus is saying, I'm telling you these things. I'm opening up your knowledge of the Father, your understanding of who God is, so that when the trial comes, you'll have a confidence in the character of God that I've told to you. Now, here's the point that what you understand to be true about God is going to determine how you navigate those trials. If you understand God to be negligent or uncaring about you, when you face a trial, you're going to think, I've got to fix and resolve this myself. But when you understand the character of God Jesus is describing, it's going to cast you dependently upon God Himself. And there's a reverse side to that. How you respond to trials will reveal what you really think about God. This is why Tozer said, whatever comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. What you think is true of God will be revealed in how you respond to trials and difficulty. And as we work through the remaining verses today, I want to ask these questions. What are these verses telling me about God the Father? What are these verses telling me about Jesus Christ? Those are the questions. So we press on. Verse 26, he says, In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. Now at once, realize that the hour of this illumination Jesus is describing, it's actually not this immediate moment. It's going to look like it for a minute because of what the disciples say. But he is talking about an illumination according to the ministry of the Holy Spirit that comes after his ascension. Why do I say that? Well, just look in the text and we see in our text here, he's saying in that day, you're going to ask in my name. And he makes a reference in there to that day that you're asking in my name. At that day, I'm going to be with the father. I'm going to be with the father at that time. That's the point. So this illumination and understanding of God is primarily seen in the fulfillment. Isn't that what we've been seeing in all of John 16? The ministry of the Holy Spirit, which brings us to a greater understanding of God. That is what he's doing. That's what he's referring to. And in the disciples response, even that that is the main point. And then even even still. These disciples do seem to at least say that they've got a greater grasp of the truth according to his words here. Do you see that? If you look forward, they're going to go on and say, ah, yes, now we believe, we know, we understand. You're finally speaking plainly to us. It's important to remember that this promise, the fulfillment of this promise is yet to come for them. And his words are meant to encourage them at his absence during his death but even more so to encourage them at His absence during His ascension to the Father. Now you may think, well, what difference does that make? This is the difference that it makes. If the primary fulfillment of what Jesus is saying here is singularly or primarily applied to the disciples dealing with Jesus' death on the cross, it doesn't really have anything to do with you. Because after that, Jesus rose. And after that, a lot's happened since then. But if indeed this is talking about one of the blessings of having the Holy Spirit, if indeed this is saying one of the benefits of this comforter is that you're going to have this confidence in God the Father that produces endurance in trials, if that's what it means, and indeed it does, then it applies to you. It applies to your experience who have been promised this same comforter. This isn't just some temporary help to get the disciples through that period of time when he was in the grave. 
It's for us today so that we can have joy and encouragement in tribulation. He says, in that day you will ask in my name. So what is this encouragement supposed to look like? In that day you will ask in my name. One of the repeated emphases that we've made in John is on the significance and the necessity of praying in Jesus' name. And I'm just going to be frank with you. God knows our hearts and He knows what we're trusting in, but it always bothers me just a little bit. And I don't have anybody in mind right now, so if you do this... I'm not preaching at you. Maybe God's talking to you, though. That when I hear people close their prayer with no mention of Jesus, it just it makes me wonder, do they see Jesus' role interceding for them as being significant? Jesus said, pray in my name. And that's what we're supposed to be doing. Just, just a side thought. But Jesus, He is seen in this text. In that day you'll ask in my name. It's not merely the formal closing of a prayer. And it's not some abracadabra incantation that guarantees your request. What we're literally saying when we pray in Jesus' name is to pray according to His person. It's to pray according to His revealed will and what He has accomplished for us. His righteousness, His death on the cross, His resurrection, and His relationship to the Father. When we pray in Jesus' name, all of that's included in there. And not something to just be mindlessly said. Paul says to Timothy, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And if we're not praying according to these things I just mentioned, his person, his revealed will, what he's accomplished, his righteousness, his relationship to the father. If we're not praying according to those things, then I suggest to you, we don't have any business praying at all. We're talking about praying to the father and and There's no access to the Father. Jesus said no one comes to the Father except by me. What access is there to the Father apart from Jesus? It's He Himself that grants us access access to the Father. Now I'm saying these things and immediately Jesus is going to confront them. Because I'm telling you, because of Jesus as intercession for us, as mediator, we have access to the Father. And then listen to the second part of this. He says, and I do not say to you, that I will ask the Father on your behalf. Did that stump you a little bit? Do you imagine when you offer up prayers in Jesus' name that the Holy Spirit runs up to Jesus and says, hey, you know what, Bruce? Bruce Swihart has a prayer, Jesus. Holy Spirit goes and tells him, so then Jesus turns to the Father and says, hey, Father, Bruce has a, has a prayer request. You, you see it as a chain of command or some process that way? You might be inclined to, especially when you read Jesus is the mediator for us. But Jesus is telling us, no, I don't say that I will ask the father on your behalf. He's driving at something significant here, something incredible. You see, Jesus is interceding for us and he is our representative and our advocate. And the basis for Jesus interceding to the father for us is his righteousness, his death and his resurrection and his relationship to the father. But he immediately deals with a common misconception. How many people? Perhaps you, perhaps me, that in light of the truth of God's wrath against sin, in light of the truth that Jesus atones for sin and satisfies that wrath and the scriptural teaching that he ever lives to intercede for us. How many of us have come to the conclusion that the father merely tolerates us because of Jesus? Almost as though Jesus 
is there and the Father's constantly tempted to be against us and it's only Jesus who keeps Him at bay. Like every time you sin, the Father's ready to smite you and Jesus says, wait, 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 no, don't do that. Is that the way we picture the Father? Is that the way we picture His attitude towards us? Well, that idea is utterly and completely wrong. And maybe you haven't worked it out in this way, but any time you feel this sense of not being able to come to God in the moment of your rebellion and sin, what you're basically communicating is that you believe that God will not receive you in that moment. That there's something, some atoning work that must be done. Well, my contention to you is the triune God is not schizophrenic. One thing that Jesus is telling us is that the nature of our union with Him is so real that the Father is pleased to look on us. The Father is pleased to hear from us, to love us, even as He loves the Son. And don't just take my word for it. You can take this down or turn there. I'm going to go to it quickly from Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, listen to this in light of our access to the Father and Christ's work on our behalf. Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 11, we read this. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until His enemies should be made a footstool for His feet. For by a single offering, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then He adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Here's my conclusion. Not to the sermon, to this point. Jesus' intercession for us is not a perpetual sin offering in order to convince the Father to love us. That's not what His intercession means. We're reading this offering and atonement for sin took place once. One time. Then He sat down. There's no more atonement to be made. You see, the argument, Jesus' intercession for us means His very existence in the presence of the Father is the permanent testimony that everyone who is united to Christ is loved by the Father in Him. The Father sees His Son. He loves you because of it. There's not an ongoing work of convincing the Father to love you. And every time you fail, oh, I need to remind them again to love you. No. The Father loves you. Jesus says, I do not say that I will ask the Father on your behalf. And here's a news flash to the Pope. If Jesus, if I don't need Jesus to ask the Father on my behalf, I don't need you. If I can go to the Father directly, I don't need any man. But it's on the basis of what Jesus has already done. That's how I get to go in that way. It is because of our union with Christ that we have direct access to the Father. Anyone who tells you different, they're suggesting, more than suggesting, they're openly denying that Jesus once and for all accomplished atonement for your sin. Verse 27, 
I love this because Jesus is going to reiterate everything I was just saying. So let's listen to him instead of me. Verse 27, why is it that I'll not ask you ask for you? Why, do you? why is it that I'm not going to ask for you? He tells us, verse 27, for the Father Himself loves you. Do you need to hear that today? The Father Himself loves you. You want to know what truth Jesus is communicating plainly to us today? The Father loves you. I know, I know. We live in a context within professing Christianity where everybody wants to talk about the love of God for you. But let me suggest to you that if your first response to hearing this, the Father Himself loves you is, well, don't you need to qualify all the false ideas of God's love? Jesus is going to do that. But if your immediate response is that, let me suggest to you this. Do not let false definitions of God's love cause you to not rejoice at hearing that He loves you. If you are more excited about hearing a message on wrath and hatred against sin and the damnation of the wicked than you are the love of God in Christ for you, you're missing something huge. Jesus says you're going to stand in tribulation knowing the Father loves you. Having the opportunity to go directly to Him in prayer. That's going to bolster your confidence in what God has done for you. Knowing that He, he really loves you. And, and in all honesty, that ought to drive you to ask a question. How is it that this God, this Father Jesus is telling me about. Who knows everything I've ever failed at and all the sin in my life. How is it that He can love me? How can He be this way towards me? And my answer is one of the reasons we must we must deal with false definitions of the love of God is because if we deny the harsh realities of life such as sin, it lessens and cheapens God's love. If you ignore your failure, then you're making light of God's love for you, which is Able to overcome your failure and and conquer your sin in the cross of Christ. We must deal faithfully and honestly. This is an honest book here in front of you. You don't have a bunch of people starting a religion themselves that are all just shiny and perfect. That's the way we would have probably planned it. Instead, we have a book filled with fallible people who mess up constantly, who continue failing and in sin. And God says, my salvation is not dependent on you. There's something of honesty about this. You see, the love of God for us, the Father Himself loves you, He says. God's love is defined by God. And His love is demonstrated. It's been expressed. And it includes a scourge. The love of God includes a cross. It includes wrath. It includes death. And it includes a grave. That's... The love of the Father and the Father and the Son and the Spirit, they were in full agreement about the links that they would go in order to rescue, redeem, and save you. There's a full agreement ahead of time. Jesus wants you to get this. That, that whatever tribulation you suffer, it's not going to be worse than what He suffered. And there was a purpose beforehand. Reading this is meant to give you confidence. Wait a minute. You want to talk about pressure? Affliction and oppression. What of what Jesus faced? 
If that could not stop God's purpose to save, what can? And if you want to know that idea that here you have the son, he really loves me, but the father, hey, I'm not sure. Think on this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish. But have eternal life. God so loved the world. The father so loved the world and he loves you and you're not competing to earn his love. He's already shown it and done it. Now, the logical question to ask at that is. Why does the father love me? Why? If the answer to that question is something you expect to find in yourself, you never will. If you look in your own self, your own mind, your own heart, and try to come up with some explanation for why the Father loves you, you're not going to find it. Now somebody says, well, wait, brother, read the rest of this verse in front of us. Doesn't that tell us? Well, let's look at it together. Jesus says, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. Now. This is not to be misunderstood as though Jesus were saying that we earn the Father's love by loving Jesus. It's kind of what it sounds like a little bit. Perhaps in a moment we can consider the Greek and the Greek will really clarify it for us. But the idea here, he's saying the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and I believe that I came from God. A couple of things to remember. The same person who wrote this gospel account also wrote 1 John. Chapter 4 and verse 19. We love because He first loved us. Right? We love because He first loves us. This is not to be misunderstood as us earning the love of God by loving Jesus. It's that He first loved us. And what exactly is it that produces in us a love for Him? Well, if you look at 1 John 4 and verse 10. And this is love. Not that we have loved God but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. You see, you hear the certainty, the finality of this. Here's real love. The Father sent His Son to propitiate for sins, for your sins. That's how we know God loves us. Think of the horrors of this. If you live your life asking, does God love me? And you're trying to ask yourself, well, if I want to know if God loves me, I need to figure out if I love Him. What? It's the most backwards thing you can do and the most miserable thing you can do to try to find something within you to merit God's love. You see, the point Jesus is making in this text is easier understood whenever you think of the Greek, which interesting, you would expect you would expect that the word love here would be agape, wouldn't you? the unconditional love of God, the endless love of God, immeasurable love of God, agape. Well, the word here is philia. Now that's extremely important. Philia, brotherly love, family affection. That's important. Jesus is saying in this text, the Father loves you. Well, because why? Because you've loved me. Because you have affection for me. Because essentially, you're part of the family. God has a philia, a love and affection, familial affection for you. Because you're in Christ. Because you've been in, placed in Christ. Here's essentially the point. Why do you love God? Because He first loved you. Because He redeemed you. Because He saved you. And because He placed you in His Son. He adopted you. 
And this is what we're reading. The father loves you as a child because he loves his own son. Think of it in this way. He says, because you've loved me, here's here's a way to think of this. The father loves his son. And if you are in Christ, then he loves you. Because why? Because you're in his son and he cannot stop loving. He will not stop loving his son. That's why he loves you. Because he loves him. Verse 28. Jesus says, I came from the father and have come into the world and now I'm leaving the world and going to the father. You know, it's been suggested that this might be the clearest statement in the whole New Testament about Jesus incarnation. Well, let me put it this way. The clearest statement Jesus himself ever made about his own incarnation. I came from the father. I've come into the world and now I'm leaving the world and going to the father. Consider this. The encouragement Jesus is giving his disciples and you here today is rooted in his own deity. Jesus says, I came from the father and have come into the world. No one can ever say that. No one can ever say that. I just was asked this week by a member in this community about some foolish book being recommended by a false teacher named Sid Roth. I won't go into the details, but basically... One of those, you know, kid died, went to heaven, came back, has stuff to tell you from God's stories. The scripture says that no one ascends from heaven or descends from heaven and ascends back to heaven except the Son of Man. Jesus is the only one to ever do that. And here we're reading, He's come into the world. He's come down. His existence did not begin whenever He was born in Bethlehem. And it did not end when He died. No one else can say that. No one else can say that. He existed before. He came into the world. He's proclaiming His deity to them here. In essence, He's telling them, I've come on a mission. And everything that's about to unfold is according to that mission. All that He's about to do is related to that coming into the world as the Father sent Him and then returning to the Father. Now let me ask you this. Is there any greater encouragement for your soul than to know the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ loves you and that He's on a mission to save you. And He tells you the Father Himself loves you. Here's the point. Jesus Christ, God the Father and the Holy Spirit are partnered together to glorify themselves by saving you. This thing's foolproof, isn't it? It can't fail. When you realize this is what we read, God is for me. How do I know? Look what He's done. Look what He's done for me. There could be no greater assurance or joy than to know that your salvation depends entirely upon God because He cannot and will not fail. Well, his disciples respond in verse 29 and say, ah, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. And I could go into a great big point here about the power of the word of Christ convincing his people. And there is certainly truth in that, except in this text, it's not quite so evident because their bold assertion. How well does it hold up in the context? They say, ah, now you're speaking plainly. So there, there does seem to be something awakened in the minds of the disciples here. And yet, there remained a self-confidence in their own understanding. 
Verse 30, they say, here's what they come to see plainly. They tell us what they've come to see plainly. That now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. And isn't that John, John's purpose statement for this book? That you may know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believe and you may have life in His name, John tells us. So have these disciples finally arrived at the conclusion that John told us he wrote this book for? Well, it sounds pretty good. Have you ever had a aha light bulb moment like these guys had here? Where all of a sudden you're reading your Bible or you're listening to a, a really good sermon by a really good preacher, probably not me, and you're like, whoa, I never thought about that before. That's a great point. And your mind's awakened to something you never knew and you're rejoicing in it. Later on that day, arguing with your spouse and your eyes are taken completely off of that glory. You forget. You see something and then it's gone. You're like Peter, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. Turns right around, get behind me, Satan. Is that not our experience? We have this great realization, we think, and we're confident in our own understanding, and then we turn around, and our confidence is dashed to nothing. That's exactly what happened to these disciples. They make this profession, Jesus says, do you now believe in verse 31? Now, Jesus is not questioning whether they're truly saved or not. And keep this in mind and let your soul be encouraged by this whenever you have those moments of miserable failure after coming to something and then failing. Keep this in mind. He's not saying, well, are you really saved or not? That's not what He's saying. He's already promised them the Holy Spirit, joy and greater understanding. What He's doing here is He's presenting them with a challenge in light of coming persecution. See, at this point, He's not been arrested. He's not hanging on the cross. He's not dead in the grave. And for all intents and purposes, they're still likely expecting some military coup and overthrow of Rome. Things are going well. Do you believe now? While things are going well, do you believe? When God's giving you those physical provisions we heard about over there? Do you believe during the physical provisions? Do you believe now? Are you committed to the truth of Scripture so long as your well-being or your reputation aren't threatened? See, one of the things we're seeing in this is the genuineness of your faith is proven in the furnace of affliction. That when you face trials, then you find out what your confidence is really in. It's not the armchair of ease that demonstrates what your faith is really in. Well, I suppose it does. My question is, what will the basis of your faith be whenever your world falls apart? Whenever things come crashing down, Jesus is going to promise tribulation when that day comes. How will your faith stand then? He's not saying you're not believers. He's saying is your faith something that goes beyond the physical assurances that you have? There's something more. It goes on to say just exactly that. Verse 32, Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. You see, Jesus was not surprised when they abandoned Him. As a matter of fact, He's already told Peter specifically. Now He's telling all of them. 
You're all going to abandon me. You're going to be scattered. You're going to go to your own home. You're going to go fishing again. You're going to leave. Even after the resurrection, you, and you know that I'm risen from the dead, you're still not quite going to get it until this illumination of the Spirit that comes on Pentecost and is promised to you and me here today. Until that comes, you're going to be scattered. You're going to feel helpless. Now, he foretells their failure here for two primary reasons, I believe. Two, two reasons. The first is to point them to the ultimate source of victory in himself. Think on this. They've just said, ah, now we know. We know. We know that you're telling the truth. We can trust you. You're sent from God. Their confidence is there. If your faith is in your own confidence in the truth, that is not a safe place to be. The best and the brightest. The most righteous men to ever live have experienced excruciating doubts on what was true concerning God. If your confidence in what you think is right is the ground you're standing on, you will fall. Pride comes before the fall. And if you're prideful about what you think you know, you're going to fall. And here they have this confidence. We know and believe that you come from God. And yet they're scattered. The first reason he foretells this is to demonstrate to them, point them to the fact that their ultimate victory is not going to be found in themselves. The second reason is to demonstrate in Himself the real source of peace in suffering. Consider this. If we're going to look back on the previous verse that told us that God loves because you loved me, and we're going to say the reason the Father loves us is because we love Jesus, does that mean that the Father stopped loving them when they denied the Lord and scattered and abandoned Him? No, that's not what it's telling them. It's not what it's saying. Because they did scatter and they did abandon Him. You see, God, His love, the Father's love for you is never dependent on you. The success and advancement of the church and the world is never ultimately dependent on us. If it were, it would be an utter failure. It's on Him. And so what hope then is there? What encouragement. I say we're supposed to have hearts that are enriched. We're supposed to take heart and be excited and confident. And we're seeing Jesus say you're going to be scattered and you're going to fail. Is the message simply that you're doomed to fail? That, that even these disciples, they failed. And so when we face trials, persecution, we're going to fail and be miserable. Consider the example Jesus gives us of himself. Now, let me be clear, full disclosure, Jesus' death on the cross was not primarily an example. We've got to say this today because there are people out there in the name of Christianity will tell you that the death of Christ on the cross was an example of love. Well, indeed, it was, but not only that. It was the accomplishing of propitiation, of atonement, of wrath that others deserved poured out on one who did not deserve. It's more than an example. With that said, let me tell you one way that it was an example. Jesus says, yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. Jesus Himself endured suffering and persecution, tribulation, the abandonment of His closest friends, and even death under the wrath of the Father. And He says, even in His darkest hour, the Father is with me. 
Think about this. He's about to tell them, take heart, have peace, be of good heart, be encouraged. Why can they be encouraged? You're going to be persecuted and under tribulation. And he says, hey, even whenever you all left me and I was all alone in the greatest degree of suffering anyone has ever experienced, he trusted the Father. He trusted the Father. Even in his darkest hour, we see this, that unwavering love and trust in God the Father. Now, we talked about this last week, and in one sense, we know that Jesus Christ experienced some feeling of forsakenness from the Father. And theologians much smarter than I have taken their shoes off and said, I dare not go further than I can go in the Scriptures. And I agree. What does it mean that Jesus says, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? It meant something. But I'll tell you what it didn't mean. It did not mean that there was a division in the Trinity. Jesus here tells us, even in this dark hour, I'm not alone. The Father's with Me. He was doing that which was pleasing to the Father. And the relationship between the Father and the Son was not broken in that way. Though He was under the wrath of God, it's as though Jesus was in such agreement with the wrath that He was absorbing and under excruciating pain that He could at the same time say, it is good that you're doing this to Me. I can't comprehend this. But why is it That Jesus can say, I'm not alone. The Father is with me. Because He knew that the Father loved Him as His only Son. And Jesus has told you and I here today, the Father loves you Himself in the exact same way. On the basis of a family. On the basis of belonging to the family. Being in Christ. Connected to the Son. That's how the Father loves you. Jesus wants you to know That your knowledge of the good and faithful character of the Father is worthy of your trust. That you trust the Father. If Jesus can entrust Himself to the Father as He dies on the cross under the wrath of the Father, surely you and I can entrust ourselves to the faithfulness and goodness of the Father who loves us in the face of any difficulty. And then here we come to our final verse in John 16, verse 33. He says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Here's the paradox of the Christian life. We're promised peace and tribulation. How can you have both? How can you have peace and tribulation at one and the same time? Jesus says, I'm proclaiming these things to you and the Spirit's going to apply these things to your heart, these words, to give you peace. But in the world, you will have tribulation. There will be pressure to fold. Pressure to deny Christ. To turn your back on Him. To not... Love Him and be looking to Him. Temptations to look away from Him. What's going to be your encouragement when you face opposition? When you're threatened? When you're tried? Is your confidence going to be your own ability to endure it? Will it be your own faithfulness under pressure? Jesus says, take heart. 
Be encouraged. Be of good cheer. And the only appropriate basis for our confidence is this. He says that I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world. He doesn't say be confident in yourself to overcome the world. I just heard recently, if you, within the last couple of days anyway, a, a very brilliant, brilliant psychologist, clinical psychologist, popular political speaker now by the name of Jordan Peterson, with a genius level IQ, brilliant man. He's one of those guys that's so smart, when you listen to him, you almost think he's not making sense. And that's just because you're not as smart as he is. But he's a brilliant man. And yet I saw him angry and in tears over parents that he says demoralize their children by making them feel like they can't amount to anything. Now, I will give him this credit that if your child thinks that their middle name is depraved, you need to repent. And some of you are thinking, ah, my, my child's first name is depraved. We don't want to do that. But, and yet, at the same time, the real source of conquering and of victory is realizing this victory must come through another one. Not me. It must come through someone else doing something. Someone else must overcome. The popular Christian song says, you're an overcomer, and that's true, but not because of you. It's what He accomplishes. Look with me at Romans chapter 8. What is our confidence in a world filled with tribulation? Pressure? Romans 8, verses 35 through 37. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Pause. That is the aim of the devil. To separate you from the love of Christ. And he can't do it if you're a Christian. But he wants to make you feel like you can be. To drive a wedge between your sense of confidence in Jesus and love from the Father. That's why Jesus is saying these things. Because the enemy of your soul will try to convince you this isn't true. And notice even before that, even the first word, who shall separate us? Do you get this? There's a who behind this. There's somebody actively trying to separate you from the love of God in Christ. That's tribulation in the world. And he doesn't act alone. There's a system in this world that's actively against you. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. How is it that we have heart, encouragement, and joy? It's through Him. We are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Not the idea of me going out there and in my own strength accomplishing great things for God. And not ignoring the tragedies of life and pretending things are better than they are. But I say, no, I have a Savior who conquered sin, who conquered death and the grave and the devil. And He took my sin on Himself and said, it is finished forever. And the atonement was accepted by the Father when He rose from the dead. And I say that one conquered. And there's nothing this world can throw at me that Jesus didn't overcome. He says, I overcame the world. The darkness could not overcome the light. 
that came into the world. Isn't that where John started in chapter 1? The light could not be overcome. It overcame the world. And if you're in Him, again, united to this family, you are more than a conqueror in Him. There will be tribulation in this world. There is. And it's likely to increase. It's certainly here now, but it's going to increase. And the point Jesus wants us to grasp is, yes, your knowledge of truth concerning God is going to grow, grow your confidence, grow your, your sense of communion with God. Your knowledge of truth is going to hold you up concerning God. And even your failure to understand cannot undo the love of God for you. Grasp hold of this. And see to the one who sees and knows, I, I cannot, he must. When they're faced with opposition or failure, failure drives them to him. My prayer is that as we continue through the Gospel of John, What's so encouraging is after all of this revelation, it's so profound. Jesus, as we go through John 17 in the coming months, I challenge you, go and be reading that chapter and think on this as we go through that. Jesus was praying for you. As we see the Son of God communing with His Father in prayer, He was praying for you if you're a Christian. He was praying for you. And if you're today here and you don't know this Savior, this Jesus, oh, I tell you, come to Him. You know, tribulation is not unique to the Christian. Unbelievers have suffering in life too. They have pressure too, don't they? The hope that we have is that we have a God who is holding us fast, right? And what we saying? He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so He'll not let me go. He'll not forsake me. If you're not a Christian, you realize you're wandering through the world with no anchor for your soul. And you're going to step out into eternity with no anchor. And you're going to face the judgment of Almighty God with no hope. But this Savior, who's made known to you the love of God today, come to Him. And you will know this peace and joy. That I ask you now. If you'll bow with me, we'll close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank You for this day. I thank You for the finished work of Your Son. God, thank You that we can come to You as our Father. We can entrust ourselves to You and know that You care. You love us. You hear us. We're yours. You're on our side. You're for us because of your son. Lord, I ask that you continue conforming us to his image. Well, Father, bless the remaining time we have in fellowship around a meal and the business we'll participate in together. Oh, Father, help us to be quick to remember the source of our peace and joy is found in you and your son. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.